Hey everyone, and welcome back to Voided Transmissions. I'm your host, Jason Brazier, and today's guest is another one of my favorite filmmakers in the world. His films have played in theaters, cinemas, museums, galleries, and concert halls around the world. His work can be uh, simply described, in my opinion, and many others, as hypnotic and creative in a way, in creative in the way that he helps preserve history. And I would like to welcome Bill Morrison to the show. Thanks for being here, Bill. Thanks for having me. Well, and like, I, I don't. It's, it's, it's interesting how where to start with this because you are a filmmaker, but the films you make are very unique. Would you mind explaining to the audience about the films you make? Well, let's see. I, I usually start with some old image that I've discovered in an archive and um, that has some sort of resonance with me. And then I build out a film from there. So um, oftentimes, um, you know, r rather than looking through an archive for the, the image that matches uh, a theme, um, I usually am inspired by the archive and I, and I find my themes through the archive. So um it's a different way of working than most people are used to and also i, I use music a lot and uh, rely heavily on music so um it's quite a different experience than the movie you see at your cinematech or not at your cinematech but at the mall for instance or your what would you call that and you yeah. know it's not your standard movie yeah but i think that's what makes it makes it unique because i'm a lover of history as well and that's what in, in history and film history and so um what was the first film that you did? Because it seems like a lot of the stuff you have pulled from early on was old silent films that seemed to yeah. be kind of decaying and were getting put to, pushed to the wayside. What made you think, hey, I can repurpose this and still make it something? Well, um, I just, I guess going back, um, you know, I, I was trained as a painter and I was interested in the surface of film and, um, uh, I had the great animator Robert Breer as my professor at at Cooper Union, so he showed me a lot of stuff, and um, and I and I understood painting as uh, an ex uh, excuse me, I understood filmmaking as an extension of painting. Um, that it was many paintings seen per second, um, and I became interested in how you could differentiate each one of those images um, happening at a very fast speed, but they would it was this colliding of images um, hitting your retina that um, created this reality. And that, that, that also had something to do with our memory, that our memory is uh, grasping at images that we are uh, free associating into some sort of consciousness. Um, so I found film in this way to be uh, a great model for consciousness and for memory, um, just for the individual and also for society. And um, I started, uh, first, you know, like distressing films with, uh, you know, corrosive agents like Drano um, to to sort of make the eye aware of each image. I, I found I was too lazy to actually do cell animation, you know, but <laughs> I thought if I could shoot some film and then um, make every frame different, that it would sort of do the same thing where you'd sort of be aware that you were looking at different um, pictures going by w while there was still a photographic image in common and 
um, the more I did this, um, I well, besides the fact that it was very messy, I, I also discovered that uh, time does this on its own. And um, I think after watching Ken Jacobs, Tom, Tom, the Piper's son, and reading his description of how the that paper print that was the basis of that film came into being, uh, I became interested in that idea that um, there was these old films out there uh, that could get re-photographed back into visual currency and that this was some way was a also a sort of a metaphysical fable of our time that we were now a new people that thought in moving images and recorded moving images and and communicated with moving images uh, much more so than um you know the previous century or you know that the moving image had now become our lingua franca and therefore we were a new people so i i saw the paper print story as sort of a um and just for those of you who don't know the the paper prints happened to preserve early cinema primitive cinema um they were uh, existed as a photographic copyright law that made a photographic paper print of um of the earliest films like from 1896 to 1912 um, and they could be used i guess theoretically in court mm -hmm. for copyright purposes and they were never really used for that reason but what they did was they preserved all these early films as paper rolls as like a, a rolled up photograph with individual frames um, and unlike the unstable nitrate that they were printed on the paper actually stayed around so we have a pretty good record of um of early cinema for that reason and then it really drops off after 1912 when people no longer registered their films with a roll of photographs uh, at any rate there was a, a clerk who um was instrumental in preserving those things from being thrown away and i sort of thought that saw this story as a metaphor for you know um somehow our visual language being uh, preserved and um, that this was kind of a an origin story of all uh, and um, so anyway I, I I started imbuing in these early images more than just the fact that they were old images recording the earliest 20th century but that also that they were sort of uh, primordial original images for our people in our time um, where we came from as a new as a new species that um, that spoke in moving images, so um, that that was sort of the driving force behind it. And then um, I think years later, not that much longer, but like in ninety one or ninety two, I saw Peter Delput's lyrical nitrate um, and understood that nitrate film had this way of decaying that was just so spectacular and. And kind of it found the image and it got inside the image and around the image and it understood the image um in a way that you know just putting drano on top of a film or mm -hmm. or the any damage that would have happened from um film being photographed on paper uh which were just sort of like patinas or an obfuscation of the image the, the nitrate they were kind of imbuing the image with new life and with a new story and so that was extremely exciting for me to see um a lot of people remember that film peter delpa's lyrical nitrate as 
being sort of all about decaying nitrate, but in fact, it's an extraordinary preservation of of clean nitrate um, that's uh, that's presented in an incredibly fastidious manner. And then at the very end, you see this sort of last five minutes, there are some decaying films. And so that was um, what kind of inspired me to go looking for decaying films. And it didn't happen for another few years, but eventually uh, I got a commission to make this, you know, visual counterpoint to an, an as yet unwritten Michael Gordon symphony that we were both commissioned to create something. Um, and the commission agent was a symphony in Basel, Switzerland, and they were calling it Fantasia because the uh, the image would follow the music when whenever the music was written. And um, so I, um, I happened to be at a conference, the first Orphan Film Symposium in Columbia, South Carolina, and I knew that they had a, and you know, the Fox Movie Tone newsreel collection was down there and that that was all shot on nitrate and I figured a lot of it had to be deteriorated. So I started searching for those deteriorated images and came up on that first day with one of the most iconic, which is this boxer who seemed to be boxing a um, yes. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. That's a gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah, like he's fighting, trying to get out of the image. It seems like. Yeah, and and that, uh, or maybe he's fighting the unknown, or he's yeah, fighting no, yeah. chaos, you know, or fighting yeah, cancer or something. There's it can be. There's, it's open to interpretation. Mm -hmm. Um, and I I love that about it. And I went back and I told Michael, look, I found this image. I found a few uh, images that I think are really compelling, and they speak to what the theme of what a, a show can be. Um, do you think you could write a decaying symphony? And he was like, of course I could write a decaying symphony. So that was the birth of what we started calling decasia. Decasia, yeah. And, and um, um, really after that, I started to really seek out a lot of decaying nitrate. And it also started coming to me. Like uh, if people, archives said, oh, this this isn't worth saving. It's gone all Bill Morrison on us. You know, there's sort of this epithet that my name was used to describe images that nobody wanted yet except me yeah. so um uh, i came to collect them they they started arriving at my doorstep uh, in the library of congress they had a shelf with my name on a little post-it <laughs> that, awesome. that was stuff that only bill morrison would be interested in and so uh um you know i just started to find my images within that and then uh, more often than not there was some resonance with what was going on today um, that didn't even need to be spelled out that clearly. I thought that um, the people who would see it would see it, and the people who didn't could just appreciate it for whatever, whatever value they saw. Yeah, and um, uh, but I, I guess that's that's been my process, you know. Yeah. Well, and because I've always wondered that as well. But just for those who are listening, um, they may not know what nitrate film is. And I think the yeah. easiest way to describe it is it's combustible, but it was the early yeah. um, pre-celluloid, if you will. That... Well, it is celluloid, actually. It is, so, well, yeah. um, it, it's celluloid and acetate's not celluloid. So cell, uh, they used celluloid until 1950, and then they started using a safety stock called acetate, and mm. then after, <laughs> after that, polyester. Uh, but everything that was shot on film before 1950 was shot on celluloid, which is this nitrate based. Um, and it really came from 
what used to be uh, gun cotton. You know, it was it was this um, night. It was a a, a, a substance that um, was used for explosives originally, and it wasn't until mid nineteenth century that um, it became a plastic, and then uh, you know, really the first plastic and something that could be used to make billiards and um, uh, replicate other things. And uh, eventually, when camphor was added to it, it became flexible. And finally, uh, this stuff, nitrocellulose, found its true calling, which was to be film, so that it could be laid out, rolled out in strips and cut. Um, and it was flexible enough to go through a camera. And it, uh, once it was coated with an, an emulsion, it could um, you know, achieve the property of what up until then was just done on a glass plate. You know, so. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but the problem was that it always had its explosive characteristics. It, it held with it its its um, you know its origins uh, as an explosive, and it, it would sort of be like um, I don't know if you if the entire history of literature was written on you know uh, flash paper or something something uh, highly explosive. Um, yeah. It was such a. a a poisonous way to begin film history is that yeah. because uh, not only did those things not last and they had other ways of disappearing besides just going up in flames they could melt and become sticky and noxious and yeah. um, but most famously um, they would uh, off gas and in a small heated container and then just one spark or electric transformer could explode the whole archive and we lost so many films and so many lives because of that. And it wasn't yeah. until, you know, what, 60 years later that they finally hit upon a different stock that wouldn't do that. And that yeah. they, you know, well, I mean, I guess they'd found that acetate earlier, but it wasn't as economically viable because it wasn't as tough. It wasn't as strong. It wasn't as flexible. It didn't have, the image wasn't as good. Yeah. So they stuck with nitrate for, I don't know, 30, another 35 37 years yeah because i was going to um, say some there were many theaters that burned down too by many many yeah yeah and, and many archives and uh projection booths and you know it's kind of part of old film lore i guess you know and nobody talks about nitrate film without talking about its explosive quality it's just um it's sort of it's sort of like when people talk about the ocean they talk about sharks it's it's the same sort of thing you know okay well, this is actually a good segue into this, but one of my favorite documentaries that you did was Dawson City, Frozen Time. Oh, yeah. Um, and Mine the, too. <laughs> well, because before I became, got interested in film, I was interested in archaeology and history. And so when I even saw the trailer where they dug up these old films, I was just like, oh, my God, I've got to watch this. Like, that's just a gold mine to me. And yeah. Um, literally I, literally a gold mine right yeah well, well, how, how did you get involved how did that film come to be well so you know i've been kicking around archives for a long time and um uh, that was always sort of like a water cooler legend in archives you know with the, the dawson city collection did you know about hear about the one that they found the old films in a swimming pool in alaska you know all this kind of shorthand inaccurate stuff uh of course, it was in Canada, not Alaska, but that's a mistake people continue to make. And um, uh, in my mind, you know, it was somebody's private swimming pool in, in Alaska. Um, 
I came to be, you know, that discovery was made when I was still in eighth grade or something. So it's not like I was in on the ground floor with this mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. uh, it was many decades later, um, 40 or something, uh, four decades that, um, uh, you know, somebody asked to show Decasia in uh, Ottawa and um, the curator uh, of, of that program um, then told me, well, by the way, I also work at uh, Library and Archives Canada. They're a big national archive, and uh, I do uh, digital migration. And I was like, oh, then you have the Dawson City collection. He's like, yeah, we have the entire collection. I was like, well, I, that, that's always been something I wanted to work on because um, just in the same way I was describing the paper print collection, mm -hmm. I saw this Dawson City collection as a great metaphor for yeah. Western expansion and the effects of cinema on on, uh, on the uh, on world history and um, oh yeah absolutely well and colonialization you know yeah well and the and for those who haven't seen it and you probably got the gist of this but there was a bunch I don't even know how many films I can't remember had the number of films they found but they were doing a construction dig if I recall is that correct and they just yeah. kind of started digging up these film canisters yeah so. Uh, they're, they were building a new rec center and um, and they had a backhoe and you know were pulling up the the ground behind it and um, they had the great foresight to stop construction when they they came upon some film rolls and um, you know they stopped I think for a week maybe a, a week with two weekends on either side but it was enough time for them to grab as many films as they could. Uh, which I think numbered over a thousand of what they were yeah, uh, able, <laughs> able to gra grab. That's not like a thousand films, but a thousand different reels, mm -hmm. uh, some of which were different reels from the same title and some were, you know, different but yeah. almost all of them were, um, I mean, with very few exceptions, they were all unique in the world. They, their cousins or siblings had all disappeared somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And, um, and these were, in some cases, the lone survivors of of a of a single studio, you know, or uh, you know, or the work of a director, and um, so it was it was in quite literally a time capsule, mm -hmm. um, yeah. and um, I believe it was something like five hundred and seventy three that eventually got. I could have that wrong, but it, maybe five hundred and twenty four that it was a lot, <laughs> a lot, yeah, somewhere yeah. in the five hundreds that eventually were you know shipped back to ottawa and then restored and um we still have the nitrate copies of those um the american ones were repatriated to the library of congress and the canadian one anything that had canadian content was uh, kept in ottawa and and then um through a massive preservation effort um between the two governments um, um all the copies were put on acetate and so each country has both the United States and Canada have copies of everything that was found. That's awesome. Well, and uh, what was the um, what's what wasn't Dawson City like the last like if I remember correctly, it was like the last stop on a theatrical run, and they were yeah. trying to send them back, and they didn't want them back or something like that. Yeah, it was it was the end of the line. Uh, maybe there maybe there was one or two stops beyond that, but that was where they were going to end up, and. Uh, um, uh, because that's where they could hold them, you know, and um, but you know, again, there's, there's these little time bombs, and it's a, a tinderbox of a town built entirely with wood. Because when you 
build on tundra you have to use wood brick is going to crack as it heats yeah. and melts and expands uh so and of course all the lights and the heat and everything was fire based so um uh, and then eventually electrification but point being that this town was already prone to go up into flames every year you know um, I think there's a quote in my film where the business section is burned down every year for the first nine years. And then yeah, I remember they, that. Yes, they yeah. rebuild. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so you add nitrate to this, you know, um, and also just kind of wild people, um, alcohol. You know, it's, there's, there's some uh, pretty wild times, I believe, in Dawson City around the gold rush. And you add uh, these little bombs of nitrate that can explode. Um, you you have a liability on your hands. So um, people understanding that wanted to get rid of the nitrate or get it away from uh, the commercial center as quickly as possible. And they had a tradition of putting all their garbage at the end of the winter onto the frozen river. And then as the ice broke up, it would bring their garbage downstream. Mm-hmm. And um, th- they did that with the films for a while. Uh, they also made huge bonfires in the films, but the, the, the fires were so hot, nobody could get near them. And, um, and they also, there was an abandoned uh, library that suffered from a fire and uh, it became sort of a holding, uh, holding pen for these films after they'd been seen. And um, it was the bank manager's responsibility to make sure that um, if the theater was going to show them that they had, paid for them for that rental mm-hmm. and you know that that was he he became the representative of the studio the de facto representative of the studios in that town um eventually uh yeah he wrote to the studios and said okay we have we've exceeded our storage capacity here um what should we do with these films and they're like just get rid of them throw up destroy them so as it turned out um this bank manager was also the manager of the hockey team and um, the hockey team had just gotten full control of um, or uh, of its of its hockey rink. It used to be part of the the movie theater, but it, it it separated. And their first order of business was to get rid of the swimming pool that lay under the rink because that made for uneven ice. Yeah. So uh, uh, they set about filling in the swimming pool with whatever they could find, and the bank manager said, "Hey, we can." throw all these old films in there as well thinking that they would all disintegrate and never be heard from again but in fact it was kind of a brilliant uh, if unintentional preservation move uh, because he put mm-hmm. these uh, you know highly combustible fragile rolls into a oxygen oxygen free cold um, chamber and they were preserved much longer than any of the, like I said, any of the remaining copies were. Um, so it's a sort of an extraordinary case of, uh, I don't know <laughs> what, how, what you'd call it, but it was a, a great uh, stroke of fortune because then when they ended up pulling up the, uh, up the parking lot on the, uh, over which the mm-hmm. old, old wreck building used to sit um uh, they started finding these films yeah and i and i love you know just how you edit your films especially with that one and how you used the films that were found to help tell the story of right it. and uh 
it was beautifully done. You said earlier too, it's kind of like, you know, preserving memories. Like we're always trying to remember something and it's almost kind of a representation of like what memory is. It's always kind of decaying, but we always kind of have a visual of it. But I really enjoyed that film. But also tell me about The Village Detective. Oh, okay. So not too long after that, um, I think actually while I was still finishing Dawson City, a friend of mine, a composer, um, an Icelandic composer who was living in Copenhagen, he mentioned to me that uh, uh, he had been visiting Iceland uh, on vacation and seeing family. And this news report had come that a fishing fishing boat had pulled up their net. Um, this is like 20 miles off of Iceland. Mm-hmm. And they were scraping the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. So you can imagine this is like the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And along with all the tons of fish and lobster that they came up with, uh, were these reels of of film and um, everyone assumed they were super ancient films um, very rare mm-hmm. but as it turned out they were from a soviet comedy detective comedy from 1969 oh, um, really? okay. uh, called deravinsky detective or the village detective and um, and so uh, as i mentioned this kind of story makes its way to my door now i don't even have to go out and look for them all the time mm-hmm. um, it's because of course johan was immediately thought of me and he wrote me and um and said you know i thought you'd be interested in this and i said well yeah especially if you would write the music for it and so mm-hmm. we set about to make this film together unfortunately johan died in 2018 um, but i finished the film uh, with um david lang a great composer and a an idol of Johann's. Um, and um, yeah, that was something we finished in 2021 and um, it's out on Kino Lorber now. Yeah, and and for the, and the subtitle is a song cycle. Would you explain what a song cycle is? Because I actually had to look that up and I've, I really dove into experimental film during the uh, pandemic whenever I had yeah. time. I, I really wanted to study it and that's when I started kind of getting into a lot of that and I kept on hearing um, them refer to some films as cycles and things like yeah. that. And so uh, would you mind explaining what Well, that- okay. I mean, um, I don't know if you have a definition of a song cycle in front of you because I don't, but... Uh, <laughs> I can get one, though. Uh, yeah, well, at any rate, what my thinking was that, um, that this was a circular story of rediscovery, that um, this was a super famous... Um, Soviet era actor, um, someone who, you know, 90% of households in uh, the Soviet Union would have known his name and would have been known his face and would have been familiar with his entire body of work, um, who is virtually unknown to us now in the 21st century and in the West. Um, So his memory had sort of sunk under the sea. And then it took this kind of great stroke of freaky luck to bring it up from the bottom of the sea and bring it to my doorstep and um and i made this film about him uh his main name is mikhail jaroff uh it probably won't mean much to anybody but um you got to take my word for it he was super famous in his day yeah yeah for a huge huge country and um i guess if you're uh familiar with um say ivan the terrible or something you would recognize this guy but um 
um, otherwise you wouldn't. And so in a way he's gonna, he's drifted up to the surface in my film and he's going to drift back down. So in that way, that's the cycle. It's the cycle like, of, like of, a coming of memory. Circle almost, yeah. yeah. Okay. He's right going on. back down into the ocean of, of the archive and the ocean of our, of our forgetfulness. That's hauntingly beautiful as well said. I like that. Mm -hmm. um, more recently, I've been seeing you doing a lot of work, it seems like, with, um, I don't know if it's with um, certain cities or something, but there's one in particular that sticks out in my mind that showed up on social media where it was getting projected on the side of a silo and the people were inside oh. of like the grain silo playing the music to it. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't remember what the film was, but I think it was something local that you had helped. Yeah, so that that's an interesting story too, and um, you know, I'm I'm always looking at different ways to tell uh, a larger, longer story. Mm -hmm. um, in this case, um, this is the the tank center, um, which is in Rangeley, Colorado. Um, it's a, um, a a sonic studio that, mm -hmm. um, like you said, is is a water tank. And it was the a water tank that used to be used for steam locomotives, uh, about a hundred miles away in uh, yeah. Mac, Colorado. And um, you know when uh, diesel replaced steam locomotion, uh, there was a lot of this kind of equipment just sitting along the tracks for mm -hmm. miles and miles or whatever. Every ten miles, there was a different town with this stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so, I think somebody offered to haul this off um haul it away and of course the, the train company was happy to give it away um and it was the idea of it was a manager of an electric plant in rangeley and his idea was that if he had this huge water tank there he could lower the premiums of his insurance policy by having sort of a, a fire deterrent on hand um but then an engineer took a look at it and said you know that's a slate hill and if you put a big tank of you fill that tank with water it's gonna crush the hill and probably roll down and destroy the entire town so they left it empty and it was kind of this albatross that sat above the town um but eventually the uh, the more adventurous children in town found their way inside it and they discovered that it had this um un incredible audio quality to it and that it sustained an echo for many many seconds some say over a minute um and it behaved differently with different frequencies and um that that was a unique quality that this particular tank had um perhaps owing to the way that the sound waves um bounced off the bottom of it which was convex mm -hmm. um who knows but anyway uh the the fact remains that it um it had this remarkable quality and so i sort of started thinking about this as a kind of like a spaceship that had landed in this remote uh town that was you know a mining town uh extraction of uh oil and uh gas mm -hmm. um and has since like many of these towns fallen on hard times as as everything's gotten sucked out of the ground um and you can imagine this is a pretty conservative town uh in the 70s a band of um artists came through on uh, what they called a chautauqua tour and mm -hmm. among them uh, was the sound 
designer and composer Bruce Odlin, who was sort of making an audio portrait of all these different towns in his native Colorado. And so going around with a shotgun mic and a Nagra, and one of the locals said, hey, come check this out. And they brought him up to the tank, and I think they tried to scare him a little bit. But uh, once he calmed down, he realized that he was in a very unique audio environment, and he started bringing his friends back there. And then there was uh, other music enthusiasts and composers and musicians from the Bay Area and also from Boulder who would convene there sort of regularly um, for solstice parties and, you know, uh, long uh, audio jam sessions. Um, and eventually they had a Kickstarter and they um, made it sort of official and turned it into a, a recording studio. So the uh, the video that you saw on social media was the guitarist Bill Frizzell, who was performing inside. And, and then I sort of told a story um, based on what I've just described about the tank um, and projected that on the outside, um, which became, you know, I, I sort of saw it as um, a way that uh, creative people could end up in a, you know, a, a mining town and mm -hmm. how these two different populations um, deal with each other and how that was a uniquely American situation. And um, that that was a short film, was, was it? Or was it a... Uh... Oh, yeah. I wouldn't say it's even a finished film yet, but it will be one day. You know, it, it was what it was, was mm -hmm. projections for a live performance, which is how a lot of these things begin. That's certainly how Decasia began, for instance. Yeah. And, oh. uh, and then eventually we we work it into some other form where it can travel by itself. So did the Great Flood start out that way, too? The Great Flood did. You know, um, uh, I was a dishwasher at the Village Vanguard for years, and uh, Bill Frizzell was coming through there a lot in the early 90s, and he, he didn't sound like anyone else. And I became very inspired by his music. And uh, I used a track of his on uh, my film, The Film of Her, which tells the story of the paper print collection in much the same way I tell the story of the Dawson City collection mm -hmm. some 20 years later. Um, and, uh, and I used a track of his for that. And then he asked me to, um, make a film for the guitar film festival. And I used a couple more tracks of his for that, but, uh, we decided what we really wanted to do was start a project where, uh, we would both start at the same time and I would make a film and he would compose the music. And then we would sort of check in with each other and, and build it up, you know, organically that way. Um, so that was our plan. And, um, you know, I read this book, Rising Tides, about the Mississippi River flood of 1927. And uh, I started to understand how that had really been an instrumental part of the Great Migration, whereby Black sharecroppers came up to the north and brought them the music of the south with them, created what we know as American music, or, you know, popular music mm -hmm. today. And uh, Bill was very inspired that, by that idea that a meteorological event could contribute to this whole social and musical and artistic event. And so uh, we both read the, the book and, um, and then we started working on, on that project together. Um, unlike someone uh, like Michael Gordon, who writes everything out in, in these in long form, Bill writes, he does write everything out, but he writes it on staff paper that he then shares with his musical collaborators and so the best way for them to sort of have a residency was to to create a tour and so we that we toured that area of 
of the south going up towards chicago mm-hmm. um and uh you know every sound check every rehearsal and every show was sort of him developing this music um with his with his comrades with his fellow musicians and then mm-hmm. um uh, we had recordings of all those performances and rehearsals and sound checks and then i could build what i understood as a soundtrack of this film using his recordings and i could give him that build um, mm-hmm. for him to rewrite and re-record um the whole thing the, the whole thing and um and you know think about uh what each chapter would be and mm-hmm. what its tone would be and um you know what the imagery would be and then we reconvened and and uh did another uh bunch of tours in 2012 2013 and eventually that there was a perfect concert in seattle where um you know it was just we had a beautiful recording of it and i just edited what i had to that and and that became the great flood so yeah it, it was sort of this back and forth that happened over many many years and and is that available to, to watch yeah the great flood is um you know, icarus films released it and um, okay yeah so yeah. it's out there and i'm you know most of these films can be found on amazon or whatever you know yes and i got yeah. in anarchy also yeah, and I got I because I got a uh, not Village Detective. I got um, Dawson City on iTunes one day. Yeah, I so, saw it was on there, so I had to get that. I think anytime you like plug in these things, you'll find some sort of think, platform yeah. for them. Yeah. Well, is there anything that you're working on currently that you can talk about? Oh well, I have a short film that's making the uh, festival circuit now. Okay. Um, so it it had its U.S. premiere at Telluride last month, and then it played the Camden Film Festival in Maine uh, a week later, and um, and it'll make a few uh, different stops this fall. Um, it'll play a, a festivals in Chile and Mexico, and and then in uh, in Paris and in Amsterdam, and then finally in at Doc NYC here where I live in New York. Um, and it's called Incident. It's thirty minutes long. And unlike like an, uh, a film made up of an ancient archive, this is made up of a contemporary archive. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's uh, police footage shot from the body-worn cameras of the Chicago police in 2018 uh, when an uh, unnecessary police stop of a uh, Southside barber turned deadly when uh, a rookie cop shot him. Mm-hmm. And um, that becomes like a... I tell that story in real time um, using split and quad screens um, with all these different perspectives from the the eye in the sky or the dashboard mm-hmm. cam or yeah. uh, the closed circuit TV. So it's it's a surveillance um, movie that where all the footage was uh, uploaded to the to the public um, by ordinance of Chicago. Wow, that's great. Uh, I'll have to check that one like when that's available. Um, yeah. And let me think here. I mean, there are a lot of um, so you got your so you said you were heading out to Europe here soon. Is that for um, film or is that just a uh, relaxation? Oh yeah. So um, well, it's a couple things. There's a um, there's a monk who I'm uh, interviewing who lives uh, in Paris. Um, he was a Tibetan monk who walked out of Tibet in 59 and, uh, he's 83 years old and, um, 
So um, I'm getting his story down and uh, eventually uh, this interview will be the soundtrack of a of a, another film, a very different film for me. That's awesome. And then, yeah, I think it's a cool project. I really like this guy and I like his voice. So I think it'll be a beautiful meditation for people to sit with this guy and his voice and have him tell this story from a firsthand account. That's and, great. Uh, <laughs> thanks. I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm excited about it too. And um, and then, you know, one of my sidelines throughout um, and really like sort of the genesis of a project like the cage or the great flood, as I just described, it was, you know, that I do projections for live music performances. So the yeah. um, began that way. The great flood was um, also conceived that way. Dawson city eventually became a, uh, you know, we, we performed it live a couple of times. Um, and um, uh, so I've, I've worked with a lot of composers doing that. And um uh, one composer this will be the third time i've worked with him on an opera is uh, john adams and uh, we mounted his new uh, version of antony and cleopatra at san francisco opera last fall oh that's and cool. there's right on. the european uh, premiere of it will be in barcelona mm -hmm. uh, later this month so i'm going over there to to get all the media together for that so i've made a bunch of films that will um set inside the set design you know they're, they're projected oh, awesome. cues you know so that's awesome um, yeah it'll be fun to do and uh, always exciting to work in live theater that's great because you know like i said at the beginning you know i love your work it's hauntingly beautiful and it has inspired me to write out an idea that i'm hoping i can somehow do soon as well that's kind of uh you know like the old city symphony films uh, yeah. they had in their early 20s that I would love to do that deals with the history of uh, Jefferson City, Missouri, where I'm now my family's moved to and this place has got so much rich history and I actually just came across some footage on YouTube of Jefferson City in the 1950s and I was like, oh man, I gotta write this down and yeah, so I'm hoping I can use, find a way to do something with that here because um, I would love to do something like you said, like the live performance. Because, um, do you know Guy Madden? Sure, love Guy Madden. I've talked with him as well, and he's a, another one of my favorites. But like he did the same thing with his um, Brand Upon the Brain film, and I remember just being fascinated by like somebody doing something like taking an old school concept and turning it into something more using it in the modern times, and that's what also fascinated me and led me to your work. And so um, I'm just uh, grateful that you took the time to talk with me. I mean, I could sit here and talk to you for hours about this because, you know, I love learning about um, other filmmakers techniques and what inspires them. And it, it inspires me. So knowing that you're That's still great, doing stuff is, is, is very motivating and um hoping to sit down here, hopefully in the next couple of months and get a couple more of your films and, project them up on the wall down here in my little makeshift theater I made in the house and uh, sit back and take, take it all in. So uh, that'd be great. And I just wanted to say, yeah, uh, I had a double feature of Dawson city with guy showing his, my Winnipeg. And I oh, thought those my, two, they went awesome. together so well. Yeah. Oh, and, my Winnipeg uh, is great too. Yeah. Man, that would be, a, that is a good double feature. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> I've got and, both of those films. And then we did a Q and A afterwards, and you know, guys just so funny, and 
you never know how much of what he's saying is true. He, I think he just switches <laughs> it up a lot, but yeah, I, was, I just, I'm so amused by him. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and I read and that. inspired and inspired. By oh yeah. He's a fast, he's so fascinating. I reached out to him when I started doing my first experimental films during the pandemic, because I couldn't go anywhere. And I just happened to say, I'm just, I, I've got nothing to lose. I'm just going to reach out to him, you know, and ever since then, he and I talked ever since. And, oh, that's great. Yeah. He's a uh, very approach, approachable guy. And I oh, absolutely. A, and I think he's a genius too. You know? Oh, yes. Well, and I actually, I'll send you the link, but I actually interviewed him. It's like an hour and a half long interview. And like, I had some people tell me that that was like the most honest they've ever seen him in an interview. Oh, wow. And I, I got permission to use some of the clips from his films and, uh, um, and I was just, you know, excited that people enjoyed that, but I'll send you that link to see it when, you know, at, at your leisure if you ever want to. But um, anyway, yeah. I know you got a, things to do as well, but I just thank you for taking the time to talk with me. And Oh, uh, Jason, great to meet you. And I enjoyed talking to you. And uh, I think that's a great idea of, Everyone should do a city symphony of their hometown if they're so inspired, you know? Absolutely. Well, um, safe travels in Europe, and I will catch up with you soon. And thank you for listening to Voided Transmissions. But before you go, give us a like or a subscribe and give us a review. It helps us out on any platform we're on. It helps get the stories out there that uh, my guests are telling. And thank you. And it is greatly appreciated. Until next time, guys. Please, please.